Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Tayari Jones, whose latest novel is An American Marriage, earlier novels, Silver Sparrow, The Untelling, and Leaving Atlanta. Tayari Jones is an associate professor at Rutgers Newark University currently from Atlanta. And I'm moving back to Atlanta. I've just taken a job as a professor at Emory University. Tayari Jones, we'll talk about your career in a little bit, but let's first start with talking about an American marriage. I understand the origins of the book happened in a mall. Yes, I was on fellowship at Harvard University to do research on the issue of mass incarceration. And I was really looking at like a lot of fact-based stuff. You know, I read statistics that just made my hair catch on fire. But I was outraged, but I wasn't inspired. You know, I feel like art and fiction comes from a place of curiosity and ambiguity. And when I was reading about people have been wrongfully incarcerated, there was no ambiguity. Imagine this, the clock is ticking, the Harvard people want a presentation from me, and I have nothing to present. So I went home to Atlanta, and when I was there, I went to the mall, and I overheard a couple arguing. I heard the woman say, clear as a bell, she said, Roy, you know you wouldn't have waited on me for seven years. And I was intrigued, and that became the basic, like the basic building block of this novel. You wouldn't have waited on me for seven years. But he turned around and said to her, I don't know what you're talking about. This wouldn't have happened to you in the first place. When did this happen in terms of the writing of the books? Did this happen after the previous book was published? Yes, the previous book was published. I was maybe almost a year out from the last publication. I was ready to start something new. You know, I had had a couple of false starts along the way, which is my process. Despite that, the false starts break my heart. And then I had decided to do this research and just go in a different direction than my previous work, since my previous work all had kind of an autobiographical slant. I wanted to engage the issues of the day, but the problem is that when I was doing all this research, I was trying to write about problems and their people when you should write a novel about people and their problems. I was researching like mad, and I had so much information, but I didn't have a story. And then when you heard that, you went, aha. And I understand that the book began, you started writing from the perspective of the woman, Celestial, by herself. I'm a Southerner, you know, I'm from Atlanta. And, you know, Southern literature, one of the hallmarks of Southern literature is women who don't behave. And so I wanted to write a novel about a woman whose husband had been wrongfully incarcerated, but, you know, she's home without him and she wants to live her life. And she gives herself permission while still loving him to move on. And so when I wrote it, though, only from her point of view, it didn't feel like the whole story and I was really frustrated because what does it mean if one's story is not the whole story? 
I didn't know if it was because she was a woman that her story didn't feel like it was enough or if it just really wasn't enough. Then I went to a reading and I heard Claudia Rankine read from Citizen and the line she read from that is the epigraph to this book and she says, what happens to you doesn't belong to you. It's not yours, not yours only. And with that, I thought, well, maybe this story is both their stories, Roy and Celeste. So I rewrote the whole book from his point of view so that I could be familiar with him as well. So you had the book written from her point of view. How far had you gotten? Had you written the whole book at that point? I had gotten to where I would say what would be 10 or 15 pages from the end of the current version. So yes, I had an ending. You had everything more or less down, and then you said, wait a second, this isn't working the way I wanted to, and you went back and inserted the Roy segments to replace hers? I wrote the whole book from Roy's point of view. Really? And then what happened? Because it's from both their points of view and other points of view as well. Well, when I had it from his point of view only, I wrote like a dream. It came to me so easily, but I realized it came to me so easily because this story of a man, a black man facing the system is a very familiar story to me. That's why I was able to write it without really stretching myself. And so then I alternated them to try and add something new to the narrative that I already knew. And when I had their two points of view, it felt much better, it felt more complete. But the problem then was that Roy felt too, he felt too iconic, like he was representing the black man. And as you know, just like I'm sure in all of our real lives, you're put in a situation where you're representing more than yourself, whether it's your race, your gender, or just your family, and you feel so boxed in. I felt like my writing was boxed in because Roy was the only black man voice. I just felt stuck because every decision I felt like, well, what then are you trying to say about the black man? And so then when I added another black man to the story, then neither of them was the black man. And they got to have more room to be themselves and explore their personalities. A part of that had to do with the woman celestial being, her voice was so unique to her, you didn't have the same issue. I didn't. And I also just don't think that a black woman occupies the same imagination space in the culture. Now, there's one other element, and then we'll go into the story itself, and that's that there's about 50 pages, maybe less, of letter writing in the middle of the book, which involves old-fashioned letters. How did that idea come to you? Well, I write letters. I write four or five letters a week. Um, So it's a form that comes natural to me, and I do think that prison is the only place where people can write letters and it doesn't feel contrived. I feel that if any other modern novel had that many letters, you could tell that the author was into letters and was trying to figure out how to use them. But with prison, it just comes organically. And it allowed me to show the emotional life, Roy's emotional life in prison without walking the reader through the brutality of prison. But you still get a feel for the emotional impact. I think. I hope. There's a moment toward the end of the book where Roy mentions casually that he killed a man in prison, but there's no mention of that earlier on. Right, because in his letters, 
we only see what he wants to share with his wife. And that is his big shame. You know, the thing about prison, as he says, being in prison makes you a prisoner, whether you're innocent or not. Being there changes you. And that is his, that is the shame he carries with him. At that moment, as you're writing that, is that when it occurred to you, okay, he killed a man in prison? I kind of knew that earlier, even though the letters to Celestial are the way Celestial learns what happens to him in prison, he had revealed it to me earlier. And I was wondering to whom he was going to confess. I really wondered, because I knew he had to tell someone, but I, di I didn't know how that was going to work out. Well, when you say you didn't know how it was going to work out, when you're writing, then there are these little surprises like, this is the point. I mean, how conscious is that part of the writing? Well, many of the surprises in this novel were surprises to me. Like, you know, there's one big plot twist, which we will not talk about in the middle. But when Roy told Celestial, she was shocked. I was shocked. Roy was shocked when he found out. I felt like we were all shocked about it. But then when I reread my own draft before then, I saw that I had been leading to this, but I didn't realize it. I mean, there's something about writing that's a little bit mysterious. It's not true that the characters talk to me or I'm not in control. I mean, I am the one writing the novel, but I almost think that when you're writing a novel, it's almost like you're in a romantic relationship with the novel where, yes, when you're in a romantic relationship, you are in fact making choices, but that other person is affecting the way that you make your choices. So I feel like for the six years I was writing this book, for about five of them, me and this book were in a very rocky relationship. <laughs> but then we worked it out. We're, we're fine now. Well, when you say that, what exactly do you mean by the rocky relationship? What was going on between you and your computer? My typewriter. Your typewriter? Yes. Okay. Well, there was a part when I couldn't figure out, like I was stranded about 50 pages from the end for over a year. I felt like me and the book we were in a relationship like we were in New York or San Francisco where we could not afford to move out. So we had to live together because me and the book, we weren't speaking because I couldn't figure out how to end the book. Even though I had written it by this time three times, I misunderstood what the central conflict was. And the book ends with some kind of unraveling of the central problem. But since I didn't know what the problem was, I was approaching it the wrong way. So when I would try to write it, I wrote several endings and none of them were right because I was asking the wrong question. So it was like I was engaging with this book, but we weren't getting anywhere and I was mad at it. And of course, I'm not gonna say it was mad at me. I don't, I don't go that far <laughs> with it, but I was frustrated and I thought that I was ready to void the contract. I was saving my money to return the advance. We know what the conflict is, those of us reading the book, and we know that there's got to be a resolution to the conflict, but it felt like what ending would be most appropriate? I figured it out while I was reading the book. I figured out the only way it could end that would be satisfying, and that's how it ended. What? What do you mean you figured it out? Take it back. You are the only person. You are the only person that ever figured it out. What I thought when I couldn't quite end it is I thought the question of the novel is, will Roy regain what he has lost? How can Roy regain what he has lost? And I feel in some ways like Roy was dragging me through the novel because that's what Roy thinks his problem is. He wants to 
get his life back as much as is possible to try to pretend like what happened didn't happen. That's what he wants. What I realize is that what he has lost is not his job, his house, his wife, his status. What he has lost is the ability to understand himself as something to contribute to his relationships, contribute to his life. And that's what citizenship is. We become citizens of our own lives, of our relationships, of our nation, by what we can contribute. And before then, Roy never asked himself what he could do for anybody else. He just wanted everyone to heal him. And I thought the question was, will these people heal him or not? I did not realize that what I really need to think of is how can Roy rejoin the world as a contributing person? How can he heal himself? Yes, through how he could heal himself through healing others. He'd never thought about it. I never thought about it. And that's why we couldn't get where we needed to go, me and this book. Let's talk a little bit about the characters themselves. Okay, the first character that would have come to you, obviously, was the woman, Celestial. Why the name Celestial? You know, I just liked it. When I was on tour for Silver Sparrow, my previous novel, I met a beautiful woman and her beautiful daughter, and the woman was named Celeste, and her daughter was Celestial. And I just thought there was just something audacious and beautiful about the name itself and that she would name her daughter for herself. And I said to her, I'm going to put that in a book. And that's where you got Gloria and Gloriana. Yes, yes, <laughs> that's where. Gloriana is Celestial's middle name. Gloria is her mother. On the part of Roy, Roy the name came from the mall, but his middle name is Othaniel. Where did that come from? You know, I, in the South, we have a lot of names that are almost like another name, but with a variation. Like you could have someone named Bianca and then maybe someone else named Dianca. Like in my mother's family, I have an Aunt Retha and then I have a cousin, Teretha, and then there's Doretha, like all these variations. So I just liked Othaniel as a variation on Nathaniel. Andre, the third party in the triangle, I got the feeling, maybe I'm wrong, I got the feeling that somehow his role kept growing and growing. Is that right, or was it always there? Andre is literally the boy next door. Right. And you know, when they were babies, they used to bathe together in the sink. And that is what I knew about him at first. And I actually think the fact that the boy next door is an iconic or archetypal role, that his residency next door had him boxed in in my imagination. And I did have to keep writing and keep thinking to give him more than that. It's almost like, you know, how the boy next door like I said, it's a type, but really the boy next door, what that means is really going to depend on where you live. You give Celestial the job. She's an artist and her job is to create these dolls. Where did that arise? Well, there is this wonderful Honduran American doll maker in Brooklyn named Cosby Cabrera. And I met Cosby and fell in love with her dolls and I would watch her make them. And I thought about dolls as such an interesting art form for a woman because if you ever watch Cosby make a doll, you can see how much work and just artistry goes into them. But the doll is considered a toy, something for children, something for girls, and the struggle for legitimacy as a woman artist. Just, you seem like you could just encapsulate it so much in looking at Celestial 
as a doll maker and also creation and babies figure in the narrative. So it just all seemed to, it just seemed to do so much multitasking in the story. Were you always intending for her to be an artist? I was. I wanted her to be an artist, but I didn't want her to be a writer because then you can get into that weird autobiographical territory. But I like the dolls because I am just so taken with Cosby's dolls. I do not remember what exactly Roy does. He's white collar. He is a textbook rep. And, you know, because he says, you know, he, he represents math books at this company. And even though he says his expertise with numbers ended at the 12 timetables, I got that because I have an older brother and he's, um, he was a textbook rep when he was young. And it just was a job that I knew about. Sometimes when I make decisions in the novel, I just borrow things from real people so that I don't have to use my imagination on it and I can save my imagination for the emotional work. And... In an interview with NPR, you likened Roy's arc, character arc, to that of the Odyssey. Did that come afterward, or was that in your mind during the writing? I am just mad for Greek mythology. I feel that everything I've ever written has to do with Greek mythology. So I knew early on that I was thinking of this similar to the Odyssey. And you know, in the Odyssey, Penelope is an artist. She's a tapestry artist. So this novel is as though Odysseus comes home and... Not only has Penelope not been mournfully unweaving her tapestry, she's like in the tapestry business. She's a world-class tapestry maker. So I kind of updated it, and it was fun to me because I feel like Roy, even though this is a modern novel, he wants exactly what Odysseus wants. He wants to come home to a faithful woman and a clean house. That's what he wants. And this is the thing because Celestial is no Penelope. So it's also kind of like cultural clash between them. It's about women's roles changing. And Roy likes that she's so headstrong and audacious before he goes to prison. But once he goes to prison, he gets really, really conservative. I think that's what happens. Like when the going gets tough, people want to become very old school. It's called an American marriage. On some level, we expect some kind of generic book about the marriage, but it's not. What brought you to the title? Well, I'm not good at titles, so my editor wanted to brainstorm. He says, okay, we're going to brainstorm up a title. I said, okay. He's no judgment. I said, okay. I said, what about an American marriage? I said, we should use American because when you say things are American, it sounds important. And he laughed, and I even say, oh, my cat, she's writing a memoir. It's called American Feline. It's going to be huge. And he laughed, and then he said, but I like it. And I was like, no, 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 this is just the brainstorm. You promised me we wouldn't do this. But he really, really liked it, and I felt like I did. I felt like it was generic, and I also felt like it was about white people. I felt like it sounded like it was about white people in Connecticut. I realized, though, that... The fact that something generic sounds like it's white means that it means that whatever is until notified otherwise. And I spoke to my mentor, Pearl Clegg, about it. And she said that, you know, this book is American. This story is an American. It's, and you're American. And if you want that title, you have a right to it. If you just don't want it, don't want it. But don't think that it isn't appropriate to your experience. Well, what it does do is it makes you rethink the word American, which, of course, is part of 
on some level, the goal of the book, which is to make you understand that there are a lot of black people in America. Yes, and they're having a uniquely American experience. I was really apprehensive about it. And also, you know, I think, as my editor said to me, he said, are you afraid that your book can't hold up to the weight of the title? You know, when you say something, an American marriage, it says that you're making a point about America. It's, it's entering the world of big ideas. Tell me the truth. Are you afraid of that? And I had to think about it. And I realized that I was because even when I was coming up with alternative titles, I was hedging like portrait of an American marriage, story of an American marriage, an American lyric, you know, something like that. And I kept doing that because I was making it smaller. And he he said, I think this is a gendered thing that's happening here. I finally said to him, okay, I'll take the title. I want the title, an American marriage. And then he says, that's great because we already have the cover made. (laughs) (laughs) One element that comes through is the bigger story, which is the story of African Americans in America, particularly the story of Roy, which at the time, here's a man who is hanging out in bed with his wife at a motel where they're celebrating their history. Someone barges in, arrests him, and suddenly he's in prison. And on some level, what we're seeing in America today We're seeing that very story on different levels being played out. I do think that we are seeing it all over the country, but it has also always been like just this fear, this fear that whatever you've gained will just be taken from you in the blink of an eye. I think that fear really in many ways shapes African-American culture, this idea that your middle-class status is so tenuous that one wrong move, someone else's assumption, just one small thing, it can all be taken from you. And so Roy is looking at his biggest fear come to life. He says to Andre, you know, Andre, this could happen to you, you know, this just as easily as it happened to me. And Andre says back to him, of course, I know this. I've been black my whole life. And so that is just part of the undercurrent of what's happening here, which is also why the pressure on Celestial to be loyal to Roy, to support him in the way he wants to be supported, is seen as supporting everyone for whom this has happened or everyone for whom this is a fear. I think that that adds to the stress on this marriage because what has happened to Roy is so symbolic. That's why the book has a resonance now that maybe it didn't even have when you were writing it. You know, it's funny. The book became more difficult because as I was writing it, you know, Black Lives Matter movement became more prominent. And even when I was working on it, one piece of feedback I got was literally, could you add more Black Lives Matter to this book? Like I have a jar of Black Lives Matter in my purse and I can just, you know, sprinkle some (laughs) on the manuscript. But to look at the question, though, with Celestial and whether or not Roy's problem is her problem in the exact same way, what her obligation is to him, it became harder to write it because of Black Lives Matter, the assumption there was such a genre expectation of this book, of this type of novel, that it would be about one woman's brave fight to save her man. 
And that isn't the question I was exploring. I was really looking at the ripple effects, the collateral effects, where this crisis that is happening to men, how does that intersect with feminism? All these questions. So it was harder to ask just how Roy feels because he's in prison and that there is no time for the luxury of other questions. I felt that way writing the book. I was worried that because of our current cultural crisis that it would not be an appropriate time, seen to be an appropriate time to look at these other questions at the same time. Is a cultural crisis so hot that there's no place for a question involving intersectionality? At my end, what I look at is that on some level, the more particular you make something, the more universal it feels. So by focusing on Roy and Celestial on some way, you're actually answering the bigger questions. If you tried to answer the bigger questions, it wouldn't work as well. You couldn't get that emotional depth. You know, I think a lot about the question of universality. You know what I think about a lot with it? I think this is, hear me out, hear me out. I think about Stephen King. Okay. Because a lot of times people think that you achieve universality by being like very high art, like your art level of art is so fine that things become universal. But when I think of Stephen King, I never imagined that someone would say, I read it and I wasn't scared about a clown in the sewer because I don't live in Maine. Like it never occurs to you not to be afraid because it's set in a different town. Right. But it's so specific to Maine. And I don't know if the maininess is that a word, is what makes Stephen King so scary and you know translated all over the world I don't quite know what the detail is that makes things universal the way I look at it is if you look at Grapes of Wrath you've got two sections one is telling the story of the Okies and the other is the story of the Jode family which side of that book is more effective the Jode family not the newspapery story of the Okies it's the other story, the specific story of one family, that's the one that gets you. So the story, say, in American Marriage, is going to tell us more about what it's like being a black man in prison, dealing with the wife who's got to remain behind, than a book about the culture of prison. I think this question of the, the universal is just sticky because also... Do you know what book has been translated into all the languages and is being read all over the world? Fifty Shades of Grey. I mean, go figure. <laughs> I feel like you just don't know. You just don't know what's going to strike a chord all over the place. I try to look at, I mean, when we look, I isolate it to like the really great works of literature like Grapes of Wrath and Beloved. You can see all kinds of reasons why it has connected you know, so deeply and so broadly. But then, like I said, here comes Fifty Shades of Grey. I don't know. I can't explain it. Well, it also it also changes over time. I mean, what... I thought you were about to confess to having read Fifty Shades of Grey. I have not read Fifty Shades of Grey, <laughs> <laughs> and I haven't seen the movie either. Mm-hmm. You know, I waste my time watching really bad superhero shows on TV. I don't have time for Fifty Shades of Grey. Fair enough. I read mysteries. I am an addict to mysteries. And I've interviewed a lot of mystery writers. But that brings up a question. You're an addict for mysteries. Have you ever thought of writing one? I have tried, but the thing is I can't write to an outline. And with a mystery, you have to know when you start who done it. 
because all the pieces have to line up, the clues, etc. But I have thought about it many, many times. I want to write a mystery set at an artist colony. Well, to answer what you said before, having interviewed a number of mystery writers, what will sometimes happen is they will know who, who done it. And then as the clues pile up when they're writing the book, they go, oh, I was wrong. Really? Yeah. I just, I'm fascinated by mysteries. I just love them. Although, if I may say, I like a mystery. I like my dead person in chapter one. I do not like it when the body count throughout. I like my dead person in chapter one and we solve it. And I like the mystery to be because they killed the person because of love, money, you know, jealousy. I don't like the mysteries that are about some sicko. I don't like that. On the other hand, an American marriage, if you think about it, is a mystery in the sense that we don't know how it is going to turn out. Well, I do think because I read so many mysteries, it makes me kind of a monster for plot. Like I like I like a lot of plot. I like a novel that even if you couldn't hear the characters talk, you would see them doing stuff. Well, you create an antsy situation because there's a point where we know it's going to lead to the end of the book and then you have things happen and the reader is going, come on, what's going to happen? And the page gets turned quickly. So you are doing that. Well, I was worried myself when I was reading it. I was antsy. I thought somebody was going to get killed. It, it could have gone either way. Exactly, exactly. When you're reading the book, you don't know what's going to happen at the end. Well, it's because I don't know. You see, I feel that when I've tried to write something, knowing where it was going, as a reader, you can feel me aiming for it. But when I don't know, I'm not aiming for it. And so I like to have a feeling of wonder as it unfolds, the way I hope that you have a feeling of wonder as it unfolds. Well, then write a mystery without knowing the ending. Can't do that, that's against the rules. It can't be done. I'll just read the mysteries. If you were to start first draft and just go and see where it goes and then figure out yourself who, the, who, who done it, then you would go back from square one knowing who done it. I guess. I mean, I, like I said, I would love a mystery set at an artist colony. Like somebody wax a, a sculptor and you have to figure out who and why. And I think I know that one of the things it has to do with is that there's another sculptor who... He's been sculpting for years, and he got the letter from the IRS saying that he can no longer deduct his sculpting expenses because he's just a hobbyist. I think that has to do with the murder. I just don't know what, but that's as far as I've gotten. Tayari Jones, let's talk a little about your career. Have you been writing as a kid? I wrote as a child, like a lot of people do. But it wasn't until I was in college that I started to understand that this writing thing was something that could be meaningful. I wrote for pleasure as a child and even as a teenager. And I really think that part of the reason why my writing wasn't really taken seriously when I was a kid is that one, I was a kid. But secondly, I think that when girls like to read and they like to write, people don't think it means that she is an intellectual. They think it means that she is a nice girl, that she is not chasing boys. Because I say this all the time and people always correct me, but nobody ever got pregnant in a library. And so you were one thing your parents didn't have to worry about. But no one ever said, what are you reading? What do you think about that? What were you reading? Like I read a lot of Steinbeck as a, as a teenager. I just loved East of Eden. I could not get enough. 
I read Toni Morrison very young. I used to love that book, Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry. I thought it was so moving. And they just did a lovely reissue of it. It's a, a young adult novel. And I also read weird things I found on my father's bookshelves, like really traumatic Richard Wright novels. And then you went off to Spillman, which plays a small role in American marriage. And is that where you met your mentor? Yes, I went to Spelman. I was the youngest girl in the class. I was 16. And I took a creative writing class that wasn't even available to freshmen and sophomores, but I forged my advisor's signature and I took the class. And I met a writer. She was my teacher. She's a playwright. She's also a novelist, Pearl Clegg. And she took me up under that wing when I was just a little girl. And she asked me, you know, what are you thinking? What are you writing about? And I just thought of myself differently from that moment. And we're still close to this day, and we do exchange letters. Real letters. Real letters. I mailed her one just on my way here. And then you went to a variety of schools, I guess, each step of the way learning a little more. Yes, I I went to get a PhD because my parents have PhDs, and they feel that everyone should have a PhD. You know, my mother said, if you don't get a PhD, you'll spend the rest of your life explaining why you don't have one. This, by the way, is not true. They just were concerned. They didn't think that being a writer was something that was a career that a regular person could do. I realized that they came to this because they loved me and they were worried for me. But I felt very, very constrained and angry that no one really wanted me to make this my life. My mother said, getting a degree in creative writing is like getting a degree in basketball. She says, if you have the credential in basketball, but you can't play, you will not be drafted. And if you are able to play basketball, no one is going to inquire about your credential. And she says it's the same with writing. But I think what she didn't understand was that the experience and the apprenticeship that comes with getting an MFA is what I needed. I needed to learn. At what point did you begin work on your first novel, Leaving Atlanta? I began working on it maybe six months before I started my MFA. And I am a believer that if you do your part with art, art makes a way. So I had started this idea of writing a novel about growing up in Atlanta during the child murders. I had written maybe 20 pages, which is exactly how many pages you need to apply to a program, but I didn't, wasn't thinking of it that way. And I met the director of the MFA program at Arizona State University, and she had seen one of my stories, and she invited me to come to Arizona and work with her. And I just, you know, threw caution to the wind, and I, I moved to Tempe, and I, I was there for two years. I worked on my book every day, and I graduated with my, my book in galleys. How did you get the agent? In? Well, I sent off to an agent. Also, think of me, I was so green. I didn't even know what an agent did. When you sent a book off, back then, that was in the paper days, you had to buy a box, a manuscript box. And I looked in on, I looked not online, it's before there was online, in the back of Poets and Writers magazine, and you could buy a box of boxes to send your book out, but it came in boxes of 10. And I didn't need 10, and I was trying to get somebody to go in with me on the box of boxes. Then I thought maybe I would send it in a cereal box, because it's the right size, but I thought that would look country, and I'm from Georgia, and I don't think I should send my book in a cereal box. But I met a writer who was like a visiting writer at the program, and she read my manuscript, and she said she would send it to her agent. And I said, well, I don't have the box of boxes that you need. And she said, that's okay. You can just put it in a regular box. So we put it in a cardboard box, and the agent accepted me, but the agent wanted me to rewrite the book as a children's book. And I did not want to write that, and she dumped me. But I learned a lesson 
when I was in graduate school, I didn't make a lot of friends because I had gotten into the program late and, and the, there were whispers as to how I had pulled that off. Was I, you know, doing some kind of affirmative action, hanky-panky or something? And so the students were not very warm to me. And so when I had an agent, me, the one who everyone, you know, who wasn't allowed any reindeer games, oh my goodness, I was like, my agent, my agent, my agent. Oh, what time is it? I need to get back home because it's almost five o'clock on the East Coast where my agent is. Etc. Then the agent dumped me, and it was a dark night of the soul for like two weeks. I had no agent after I had just been like agent, agent, agent. And I went to the woman who brought me, and I told her what happened. And you know, I had my hung my head, and she said, "I think you've learned a lesson." I was like, "Yes, ma'am." And she sent the book to her agent, who is still my agent to this day. But I learned. After that, I have never been cocky about anything because I know your status can change in a moment. Well, that book did well, and then you wrote The Untelling. Uh, Sometimes the second novel becomes even harder because, oh my God, what am I going to do now? Every novel is harder because with every book, you're using up your obvious subject matter. The first one about growing up in Atlanta during the child murders, well, guess what? I grew up in Atlanta during the child murders. And so it just keeps getting harder. The second one was weird. I like the book, but I see some things I could have done differently. But the third novel was the challenging one because I got kicked to the curb by my publisher. They took my books out of print. It was terrible. I was washed up. I was done. Luckily, I hadn't been bragging about anything because I learned my lesson back in graduate school. And I was devastated. And I couldn't get a contract. And I didn't know what to do. But I forced myself to revise the book and get it better only because I teach. And I couldn't explain to my students that I had abandoned a project because I couldn't get a contract. But just think, I was going up for tenure. I had no book. And I had gone to um, the Key West Literary Seminars because I had been invited and I didn't want to, you know, bow out at the last minute. But I was so shamed and I was reading from my book, my manuscript. I was just so sad because I was out of print. And when it came time for the book signing, I wouldn't have anything to sign. But there were four copies of the book there to be signed. And I asked the bookseller, oh, where did you get these copies? And she says, they came in this box. And she showed me the box and it had my daddy's handwriting on it. And I called him. He said, oh, those are my copies. And I went and got your uncles. They were untouched. They were new. He said, you just sell those, baby. And you just tell the people that you sold out. That, oh, my goodness, I guess they're all sold out. So I did that. I signed the four books. And then I said to people, oh, they're all sold out. And a woman came up to me and she said, oh, my goodness, I heard what happened to you. It's terrible. Your books are out of print. You can't get a contract. And I was dying because I thought that with daddy's four copies, I had, you know, I had mm. say, and the lady said, I can help you. And you know, you meet a lot of weird people on the road. She took me by the hand. She carried me through the crowd. She put my hand in the hand of Elizabeth Charlotte, the publisher of Algonquin. And I was embarrassed because Algonquin had already seen my book and had rejected it. This this Silver Sparrow. Yes. And I was trying to get away. And the lady from Algonquin wouldn't let me go. She said, well, what is your book about? And I said, it's about two sisters. They have the same dad. The father's a bigamist. And she says, well, you should send it to me. And I was so embarrassed. I was just like, yes, ma'am. And I was trying to get away, but she had my hand. Then she said, this is a good part. She said, tell me, how do you know Judy? I said, I don't know anyone named Judy. She says, no, no, no. I mean, Judy Bloom, who just introduced us. (laughs) (laughs) And with that, my life was corrected. 
three days later, we were back in business. I had the book contract and, and everything worked out. And my students always say, oh, that just says it just only matters who you know because they want to go to cocktail parties and know more people. And I say, nope. The moral of the story is do your work. Because if I had not had a completed, polished manuscript, I could be telling you now how nice Judy Bloom was to me, but it, it would not have opened the door because I wouldn't have done my part yet. So that's my thing. Do your part. If you do your part, art will open its own door. And then came an American marriage. And then came Oprah. Yes. How did that happen? She just called me on the phone. Out of the blue? Out the blue. How long had the book been in print? It wasn't in print. Oh, she, she got a galley. She had a manuscript. How'd, yes. she, how'd she get a manuscript? She's Oprah. She get what she want. <laughs> you don't ask Oprah questions. Um, but I did find out that Lee Haber, the book's editor from O Magazine, she was an admirer of Silver Sparrow, and she had wanted it to go to Oprah, but things didn't work out and it never got there. And so when I had tweeted that I had turned in my new book, you know, my new book is in, then she asked for it in pages. But I didn't know any of this. I'm driving my car, minding my business, and I see a block call on the phone. Now, I'm a person that answers a block call because I'm nosy. Somebody blocked that call for a reason. Don't you want to know why? So I said, hello. And she says, hi, this is Oprah. And it was Oprah. And you knew it was Oprah. It, it was, who else could it be? It was Oprah sounding Oprah-like. And so I put on the hazard lights and I pulled over and I kind of hyperventilated and she patiently waited for me to get through the hyperventilation. And I said, ma'am, and she says, I really love your book. I'd like to use it for my book club. What do you think? And I said, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yes, yes. I mean, it was the most exciting thing that has ever happened to me in my entire life. Well, now an American marriage is out. Um, two questions. First off, your books seem like they would work for film. Has anybody ever contacted you? Oprah. About the books for film? Yes. Oh, so now we'll see what happens. Right. I don't, you know, the thing about films, I don't understand I feel like a child who's like, I don't know where babies come from. It's like I believe that movies come from the stork. Like, I don't understand how film comes to be. I just know that we have a project and Miss Winfrey is attached. That's the language I use. She's attached. But I don't know what it all means, but it's cooking. Something's happening. Which book? All of them? Or? Um, An American Marriage. And every now and then somebody will ring me up about one of the other books, but it has never come to fruition. If it does, I'd be delighted. But I am definitely not a person. You know how some people act like they think that books graduate and become movies? <laughs> yeah. Right. I'm not that person. So if it happens, it'll be exciting. But if it doesn't happen, I'm also very satisfied with the work that I've done. Tayari Jones, now this book is out. Are you working on your next? A little bit. I feel like I'm not quite there. I've been traveling so much that I haven't had that quiet time. But, you know, just yesterday I felt like I really wish I could get off the road and write. And that was the first time I've really felt that in these three months that I've been traveling. So I think it's probably time for me to hunker down and, you know, get some alone time with my typewriters and see what's out there. Final question. Before An American Marriage came to be, you were doing a lot of research on prisons. And of course, that, after your visit at the mall, kind of set you on the path. 
Do you have an idea like that that you're thinking of working on? A little bit. You know, I've always wanted to write a novel with four characters. You know, that's kind of a classic novel structure, four friends. I've always wanted to do it, and I've always wanted to write a novel. Every novel I've ever written was almost called the Atlanta Quartet, like the Alexandria Quartet, and it's never happened. I almost think that's kind of like my writing white whale. One day I will write an Atlanta Quartet, so maybe that's what I'll do this time. And you can listen to other interviews either as Radio Olinsky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.